Good morning, everybody. How are you? If you uh, think I look a little darker to you, it's because I am. I am a little darker. Uh, yesterday, uh, my two older boys were uh, playing soccer games in 90-degree weather, and I was out under the sun, and there were some smart people on the field with umbrellas, and I looked at them because they provided their own shade, and I said, I'm too manly to hold an umbrella <laughs> under the sun. But uh, that's why I'm a little darker, but also a few weeks ago, my wife and I were on vacation together in Europe without our kids, and that's why I'm feeling very uh, reinvigorated and and uh, excited, and it was a good time to go on that trip because we had just studied the Song of Songs, and you all remember what we talked about. So, uh, you know, I wanted to definitely talk the talk and walk the walk. I'm glad you appreciate my, my, my candid humor. <laughs> But uh, it's good to be back with you, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, Danny, and then last week, Dan, kicked us off on this new series on the book of Ecclesiastes, which is also penned by King Solomon. Solomon um, wrote three of the five books in the Bible that we consider to be wisdom literature. And uh, if you remember the great story about Solomon, God granted him the, a wisdom that no other person that would ever live or had lived before him would ever experience or have. And Solomon not only had this great depth of insight and wisdom, but he was uh, a bona fide king. Uh, he uh, had everything that you could possibly desire. Uh, he had 300 wives and he had 700 concubines. And so talk about uh, living life large, Solomon did. And uh, toward the end of his life, which I believe to be when he started to uh, write uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, he's reflecting back on all of the things that he's experienced. He's been through it, he's been there, he's done that, and now he's sharing. And uh, if you go back 4,000 years, you'll find a lot of literature in ancient times that would be classified under this genre called pessimism literature. And it's because the ancients would live life and they would say, there's no point in it. Uh, life has no meaning, it has no purpose. You know, you work your entire life and then you die and, and that's it. And there's tragedy and people uh, didn't live as long and there were all kinds of injustices and wars and oppression. And uh, so people uh, basically were pessimistic about life and a lot of literature at that time was written on the futility of life. And a lot of people felt like the only answer, the only reasonable answer to the questions about life was suicide. Now that you realize, realize that life is not really worth living, just end it. You know, it's in your own hands. Do something about it. And so that's a, the way that a lot of people lived. And Ecclesiastes was written around 3,000 years ago and would also be considered pessimism literature if you read it. But Ecclesiastes is pessimism with a twist, with a hook. If you read Ecclesiastes, yeah, there is a lot of pessimism there that Solomon shares about life. But there are glimpses of hope, faith, and the goodness of God. And what I love about Ecclesiastes is it holds this incredible tension between being secular and religious. What Solomon does is he addresses the secular world. He says people who live for themselves without any purpose, without a meaning, he says, what are you living for? You know, what good does your life amount to? What happens when you die? What happens when somebody steals everything that you've ever worked hard to, to acquire? What happens when, when the, the, your lover leaves you? Or, you know, and Solomon goes and asks all kinds of profound questions. What do you do? So he holds them accountable. What are you living for? But then he holds the religious faithful accountable as well. He doesn't, uh, leave, he doesn't uh, leave them off the hook. What, what's the expression? He doesn't, he doesn't, you know what I'm saying, right? He doesn't, oh, 
I just had this expression. It was written in my notes. He doesn't, he takes them off the hook. I'm, he doesn't leave them on the hook. You know what I'm saying, right? He doesn't, he doesn't leave them alone, right? In other words, what Solomon also does is he takes people who worship God, people who believe in God, and he says, just because you are a child of God doesn't shortcut you to, his, to an easy life. Actually, Solomon says you need to face the realities of life like anyone else. Just because you don't, uh, just because you have faith doesn't mean you understand all the mysteries of life. And so Solomon writes with this incredible tension, calling out the secular, those who don't really believe in the existence of a God, and saying, what are you living for? But then he calls out the religious, and he says, well, just because you're religious doesn't mean you should have a better life. Just because you know God and worship God or claim to have some connection with God doesn't mean you get an easy pass. And Solomon calls all of the people out. And so I'd like for us to uh, turn to our Bibles to the next sort of section that we're going to look at today in Ecclesiastes, beginning in chapter 5. And uh, this is a section where Solomon is addressing wealth and poverty. And uh, you'll be surprised uh, what he has to say about this. Uh, Beginning in verse 10, in chapter 5, Solomon writes, Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs, and what does he gain since he toils For the wind. All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Then I realize that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. I've seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on men. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing his heart desires, but God does not enable him to enjoy them and a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and may live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over, 
but fails to enjoy his prosperity. Do not all go to the same place? All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Can we bow once more in a word of prayer? Lord, we thank you for that word of wisdom that you have given to us through the hand of Solomon. And Lord, even though this was written thousands of years ago, we realize that it's addressing a very modern reality. Every single one of us here today, Lord, all wrestle with the question, what's the point of life? What's the point of work? What's the point of love and loyalty and all of these things? What is the fruit of it all and is it worthwhile in the end? Lord God, as we come to ponder these questions, would we come before you today here gathered as a church with humility? Because none of us here really have all the answers to these questions. And Lord, would you now speak to us? May your spirit move in our hearts. May it illuminate our minds. May it convict us, Lord, in ways that will draw us nearer to you. And God, would you be glad as we receive from your words this truth that leads us to eternal life. So God, bless us in this time. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Before we get started, let me ask you to turn to your neighbor and ask them to define wealth. How do you define wealth? Okay, turn to your neighbor and say, hey, how do you define wealth? What is wealth to you? Okay. Thank you for uh, turning to your neighbor and sharing. Um, You know, when we try to answer the question, uh, what is wealth, a lot of us will probably say something along the lines of, how much money do you make? What is your income? What is your socioeconomic bracket, right? Some of us will say, well, how big is your house? Or what neighborhood is your house in? What kind of car do you drive? What kind of clothes do you wear? What is your aggregate wealth? You know, all the things that you own and all the things that you possess. The intellectual knowledge. Maybe that's wealth. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's many children. The list goes on and on and on. We ask questions that sort of quantify for us what we could say or deem to be wealth. Um, I have three boys, and they teach me so many profound insights. But my youngest, um, he is fascinated with uh, this movie called Cars that Pixar produced, right? And uh, probably you know this movie, Cars. It's uh, about a red race car named Lightning McQueen. Right, And it's a great movie. It's about him learning uh, the ropes of life, uh, how to deal with glory and fame and, and winning, but also uh, what humility and, and patience and fortitude uh, all are uh, supposed to mean in his life as well. But he loves this movie and he loves Lightning McQueen so much that he's infatuated with red vehicles. If you come to my house, uh, he has a red motorcycle, he has a red rocket ship, And he has a red Lightning McQueen that he rides around in our house with. I mean, everything is red. And he's so infatuated with red vehicles that we could be like literally walking through a parking lot and he will see a red Toyota Corolla and he'll say, race car, right? Like anything red that's that's got wheels on it, it's a race car. But for him, that's how he defines speed or or a racing machine. Uh, My oldest son, when he was about his age, had a little yellow elephant, um, 
His name was Max, was a little yellow elephant. And uh, from the time he was uh, an infant in a crib till he was probably around four or five years old, uh, Nathan would not let go of this yellow stuffed stuffed animal elephant. He called him Max. And uh, he loved Max that would not, could not fall asleep without him. Anytime he was in fear or in danger or insecure, if you brought Max along, he felt immediately comfortable and secure. That's the kind of effect Max had on him. He loved Max so much that if you were to offer Nathan a check for a million dollars, as if you had a million dollars, but if you were to say, hey, I will, I will give you a check for a million dollars, or just cash for that matter, you know, here's a, a stack of a hundred dollar bills, you know, I will give you this, Nathan, if you give me Max, he would turn you down. Because for him, Max was his security. Max was his comfort. In many ways, Max was also tied in with his identity. And that's what wealth is like for us. It becomes an unreasonable obsession. Now, okay, I mean, who wouldn't trade a million dollars for a stuffed animal? I could then buy the factory that created that stuffed animal, right? But for him, Max was so important and precious to him that money didn't matter. But for us, we're all adults now. We, many, of, many of you are in school or have graduated or are working and the way we define wealth, I would say, oftentimes, isn't the way that we should. Because Solomon addresses the gifts that God gives in this passage. He says, God gives people wealth, possessions, and honor. And he says, what good is it if you can't enjoy it? And we're always sort of waiting for the next thing, the next upgrade or the promotion, right? Like a lot of people think, you know, if I can just make a little bit more money, or if I can just get that job, or if I get that raise or that promotion or that bonus, if I can make partner, if I can get tenured, right? If my company gets acquired and I can take my investment out. We're always thinking about how our lives may be, might be better if we get that influx of cash or that wealth. That's why I went to school. That's why I studied this subject. That's why I busted my butt so that I could earn this much money and live this kind of life. And we start to dream and say, once I get there, I'll be happy. And once you're there, you're still not happy. So you're looking up the ladder and you say, if I can just climb a couple more rings on the ladder, rungs on the ladder, rings, rungs, if I can just go up a couple more steps, I will be satisfied. I will be content. Or maybe it's not money for you. Maybe it's possessions. Maybe all you've ever wanted was a nice big house with a two-car garage, white picket fence, swimming pool in the backyard, with lovely neighbors. And once you're able to settle into this house, you, you can move out of your apartment or your studio or your condo and finally move into that house in that neighborhood that you've always wanted to live in. And once you're there, you will have arrived and you will have no worry in this world. You'll be happy and satisfied. But then what you find yourself doing is you compare your house to your neighbor's house. They build a, a, a bigger pool, so you have to build a bigger pool. They extend their deck, so you have to extend their deck. They get the latest Weber grill, so you have to get the latest Weber grill. And you're always sort of comparing yourself to the other possessions. Or maybe that's too far in the future for some of you. Maybe for some of you it's just, you know, you want to be able to buy your first Rolex. Or you want to buy your first car. And I don't want to buy an American car or a Japanese car or, God forbid, a Korean car. I want to buy a German car, right? Or an Italian sports car, you know what I mean? And, and that's what you're thinking. You know, when I can buy that car, I'll be content. I'll have arrived. I can show the world that I've been successful, that I've worked my way to this place in life. Or honor. 
Maybe you want to have a certain kind of reputation. You want to be respected. Maybe in your company, you don't want to be at the bottom. You want to be on top. So you want to work your way up. What Solomon does here is he's very, he's brutally honest with everything about life. I mean, it's as if he wrote this in the 21st century. If you read the entire book, he's addressing ancient issues that are still modern problems. It's remarkable. But what we find in this section, I believe, is that Solomon redefines wealth for us. It's not about how much money you make. It's not about what you can buy, where you get to eat, what kind of clothes you can wear, what kinds of fancy trips you take. It's not about the degrees on your wall. It's not about how many homes you have or even how many children you're able to have. Or how many people look up to you? How many people work for you and call you sir or ma'am? Because Solomon says, what good is if you have it? What good is it if you have all these things and yet cannot enjoy them? And that's the deceitfulness of wealth or any sort of possession, isn't it? Because once you have that which you always wanted, you compare yourself to the next step, to the next level. The person that's making $100,000 a year should be happy making $100,000 a year. That's better than working, you know, uh, an hourly wage uh, at at the mall. But once you land that six-figure job, you're looking at the guy in your office who's making $250,000 a year. And so that's your pursuit. That's your goal. And then once, however long it takes you to get to that job and get that cushy office where you're the one making $250,000 a year, you're looking over your shoulder at the guy that's making a million. And maybe if you're able to work hard enough and be at the right place at the right time and rub shoulders with the right people, you can get that million-dollar job. But as soon as you're making a million dollars, you're looking at the guy that's making a hundred million dollars. First class was nice, but now it'd be great to have my own private jet. Right? And then when you're making a hundred million dollars, you're looking at the guy who's investing a billion dollars. Chump change for him. Right? We're never satisfied because we're always looking up. We don't look at what we have. We don't enjoy it and we rarely remember where we came from. If you look at the global wealth in the world and you make roughly around thirty to forty thousand dollars a year, which is low in our standards here, you would be in the top four to five percent wealthiest people in the world if you made thirty or forty thousand dollars. But our problem and the reason why wealth is so deceitful And blinding is because we never compare ourselves to where we are, where we've been, but always where we want to go. So we never have enough. And that's the danger that Solomon is talking about. God will bless you and give you wealth, possessions, and honor. But you'll never appreciate it, enjoy it, if you're always looking for more. And so Solomon defines wealth this way. It's not about how much you have or how much you acquire or how much you possess but it's simply being content with what you have. If you read this passage again, he talks about being able to enjoy or not enjoy. The word enjoy comes up a lot. Are you able to enjoy what God has given you? Are you thankful for all that which he's provided for you in your life? Because the truth is, some of us here are called to be incredibly wealthy. And when I mean incredibly wealthy, you're going to make millions of dollars in your lifetime. And a lot of us here are never ever going to come close to that. 
And that's where we've been called to live. And God holds the key to that mystery and that question in his hands. And he doesn't give it to us for us to know. But God is the giver of all of these gifts. And there's nothing wrong with being rich and wealthy. And there's nothing wrong with being poor and not well-to-do. But Solomon defines wealth this way. Are you content? Are you thankful? Are you satisfied? with what God has given. You know, I, I, let me just make fun of myself a little bit. One of the things that I'm always like coveting and like wanting the next thing is like Apple products, right? I, I love my iPhone and my, my MacBook and my Apple TV, all that kind of stuff. And like, you know, my, my wife always makes fun of me for this, but like I wait like all year, right? Just for the announcement. That's like a big thing for me. And then after the announcement, you got to wait like four or five weeks for it to actually be released. And then I get the device, you know, like I have to get it like the day it comes out, right? I had to FedEx the iPhone 5 to my house, you know, so that it was there so that I could be, you know, hands-on with it. And I, I, I love it and it fulfills me and I'm excited. But like the next morning, I'm like reading the gossip rumors again, like, well, okay, what's the next thing? You know, what's wrong with this and what do they need to improve? And like for another year, I'm waiting for the upgrade. And I'm not satisfied with my phone anymore. Or maybe that's the way you are with maybe a job. You know, you were excited when you first got this job or this new offer. When this company actually took a risk on you or had enough money to bring you in. But now you're complaining at work. I hate my job. I hate the people I go to work with. I hate my boss. And now you're looking at other jobs. Or maybe it's a relationship. Maybe this hits home for some of you. Maybe you're dating and your girlfriend doesn't treat you the way your friend's girlfriend treats him. And only if you could find a girl like her. Or maybe you're married and your husband doesn't take care of you the way your friend's husband takes care of her. I wish I could just trade in my husband. My kids drive me nuts. Why can't my kids behave like those kids? I wish I could trade in my kids. Right? I wish there was some way I could do that and, and not know but be happy, you know? And we're always sort of unsatisfied. When some of us wait our entire single life to get married, to find the lover of our lives, and then just one year, two years, five years into marriage, we're so unhappy. What happened? Who are you? You changed. And we're unhappy. Did they change or did we change or did we both change? Or have we lost sight of the fact that that amazing person in our life is also a gift from God? That job that we get to go to every day is a gift from God. The school that we get to study in is a gift of God. That education, that house or that apartment or that condo or that hole in the wall, wherever you're going back to today, is a gift from God. Are we able to thank him for those things? If you were like me in high school, you read uh, the great novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Great Gatsby. And if you were also like me, you completely forgot what that story was about. So you had to go out to the movie theater and watch it again, right, with Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, and... Uh, you know, I, I think that movie is a perfect illustration of what it means to chase after the wind. Because uh, Jay Gatsby, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, for him, the only thing he cares about is the approval of Daisy, this woman that he falls in love with. That's the only thing that matters to him. So he does 
everything that he can possibly imagine to build up the kind of life that she would appreciate, that she would want to be a part of. And he throws these lavish parties just to catch the corner of her eye so that maybe she will come over to his place. And maybe she, and it's a complicated story, but we all know, and spoiler alert, it's a tragedy, by the way. At the end, it's not a happy ending. If you think it's a happy ending, you need to go see a counselor, okay? But in the end, no one gets what they want, although they think they're happy. At the end, Jay Gatsby, he thinks he gets Daisy's approval. But we all know that it's not what he thinks it is. And as he's dying, sorry to spoil the movie, this is what I do. I always give you like a month, okay? I don't do it the opening weekend, okay? I, I could talk about like other movies that came out like this weekend, but I haven't seen them yet, so I won't spoil them. But as he's dying, he dies with a smile on his face in the movie. And is that right? Is that smile warranted? Is that true satisfaction? What is he taking with him into the next life? And this is the kind of warning that Solomon is giving to every single one of us today. Maybe we won't be as rich as Jay Gatsby. We won't be able to buy a mansion on the lake and throw lavish parties. Maybe we won't even earn a tenth or a 20th or a 50th of what he has. But you don't have to have a lot to be unsatisfied. And you don't have to have a lot to be rich. You see, my son Nathan, all he had was this mangled, chewed up, nasty old yellow stuffed animal elephant. And he was satisfied. He was content. That gave him security. That gave him comfort. And you'd say, you fool, I offered you a million dollars. I could have gotten you so much more. But again, the illustration goes to show It's not how much we have, but it's the ability to be thankful for that which we have. So let me just close with a couple of points here that Solomon is making here in this passage. Solomon says here in verse 10, whoever loves money never has enough. Okay, we just talked about that. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. So if you have a lot of money, most likely you'll buy a big car and you'll have a lot of cars and you'll be in debt and you'll be paying these creditors and you'll be owing people money, but then you'll have all these people that come into your life who want a piece of you, right? And so that's what Solomon is talking about. That was true then and that's true today. What benefit are they to the owner? All these possessions, all this wealth, if all you can do is look at it. Solomon then goes on to say, Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he goes. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. In other words, what Solomon is saying here is, don't waste your life chasing the wind. More, more specifically, don't waste your life pursuing the wealth that you'll never be satisfied with. Just when you think you have it, you'll realize you don't. Now, 
let me just disclaimer this real second. I'm not saying don't, you know, go out and apply, you know, for a job that's, you know, a certain income level or, or don't work hard or, or, you know, don't pursue careers that are, that are lucrative. By all means, remember what I said, God has called some of you into those fields. And there is nothing wrong with making $50 million. Can we be friends? All right. As long as you're my friend, there's nothing wrong with it. If we're not friends, you, you need to repent. But if we're, you know, and, and that's okay. But are we thankful for the $50 million salary or the $50,000 a year salary? Can we find contentment in that? And Solomon is saying, you can chase after all these things, but you can't take anything with you, which is true. And he says, you're never satisfied when you have more. And this is the human condition. This is the way we are. And wealth, possessions, and, 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 and honor are wonderful things. We need wealth to feed the needy, to help the homeless, to bring water to countries that have no clean drinking water, to help single mothers who are struggling to provide for their own children. Any sort of social uh, uh, injustice that's happening, we can use wealth to bring help and equality and comfort back into people's lives. So it is a good thing possessions are great. If I have a big house, I want to open it up and share it with lots of people so they can come in and enjoy my house with me. If I have multiple cars, I'd love to lend them out when my friend's car breaks down or to give someone a ride when they need one. If I have influence and honor, I'd love to use that to further good causes, to endorse things that other people would say, well, hey, you know, this famous guy is signing off on that, so let's sign off on it too. These are all wonderful things. They're great blessings. But the problem that Solomon is saying is when they become the ultimate thing, they lead to destruction. When wealth becomes ultimate, it leads to destruction. When possessions become ultimate, it leads to destruction. When honor becomes ultimate, it leads to destruction. Because that, the only thing that should be ultimate, Solomon is saying, is, and he will say at the end of this book, is God. God and God alone should be ultimate. And it's when we flip the totem pole or the scale or the pyramid or whatever it is that we use to sort of imagine what should be on top. When any one of God's good gifts, and I could use so many other examples. It could be my family. It could be my wife, my kids. It could be my church. If my church becomes the ultimate thing in my life and it's all about building my church and and having this many people and doing these kinds of things that everybody talks about, I've completely missed the point. It should always be God on top. So we can take any one of the good things that we have in our lives, and when we make them ultimate, we're deceived, and we're worshiping an idol. The second thing Solomon says here is in verse 19, Moreover, when when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy with his work, this is a gift of God. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing his heart desires, but God does not enable him to enjoy them. And a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless. A man may live, have a hundred children and live many years, which was the biblical equivalent of a full life. Yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Notice what he says here. He says, God gives man the ability to enjoy his wealth and possessions, but God is also the one who 
does not enable him to enjoy them. How does that work? Does that mean ultimately it's up to God and this is where the pessimism kicks in? Okay, I can have a lot or a little, but it's up to God to flip the switch to allow me to enjoy it or not. How does this work? Well, let me uh, explain or try to answer that the best that I can in my limited understanding by telling you another story. It's a story of a man named Abraham. Abraham was called by God to be a great man, to be a great nation, and to bless all of the earth. Abraham, there is probably, he's one of the, in terms of the most influential people who ever lived, Abraham could possibly be at the top. And the reason why I say that is he is the founding father of our Christian faith. He is also the founding father of Judaism, and he is also the founding father of Islam, three of the biggest world religions today. So talk about influence. And God told Abraham, he says, hey, I'm going to make you influential, but you have to leave this land that you are comfortable in. You have to leave your family. You have to go to this place that I'm showing you, and you have to walk by faith, not by sight. And if you trust in me, I'm going to make your descendants as abundant as the stars in the sky and as all the sand on the beach, on the shore. And I will bless the world through you. So Abraham, in faith, follows God, And he starts to wait for that blessing to happen. Now, I'm not really sure how old Abraham was when God first spoke to him, but I'm assuming a decade went by and nothing happened. I'm assuming two decades went by, or three decades went by, four decades went by, and nothing happened. And the reason why I know nothing happened is because he was 90 years old, and he still wasn't able to have a son. And by that point, I mean, who even cares? Right? I mean, it's game over. It's like, I'm not going to have one. It's not my calling in life to have my own child. He hits 100, he still doesn't have a son. His wife, Sarah, is 90, he is 100, they have no children. And then one day, an angel comes and says, this time next year, you'll have a child. They both cracked up. They started laughing. But as the story goes, a year later, Sarah gave birth to a child, a 90-year-old mom. Talk about making headlines, right? She gave birth. And they named him Isaac, which means laughter. Because when they heard that they were going to have a son, they laughed. Now think about it. God has called Abraham to be this great influential man. And over the last hundred years of his life, he has blessed him with wealth, with possessions, with family, now with his own offspring. And now his entire future is ahead of him, even at a hundred years old. Now God has given him everything he needs to live into his destiny. And it all had to hinge on this one boy, Isaac. Imagine how valuable Isaac would be to you at that point in your life. If your entire destiny hinged on the birth of your child, your only son, Isaac, he would be everything. He would be the most important asset, more than everything else, because upon him is the beginning of your destiny. I would put out an insurance policy on my son. I would protect him with armed guards and armed trucks. I mean, again, like his life would be the most important life in your life. And remember, we know, you know, we've lived thousands of years later, so we know that the story is true. He does live into his destiny. But God knows that if he were simply to give Abraham a son, Isaac, that Abraham would not be able to live into his destiny because he would do to Isaac what we do to money. He would do to Isaac 
what we do to falling in love with somebody someday or that job or that car or that house or that investment portfolio that we've always dreamed of. We will take that good thing and we will make it the ultimate thing. And so God intervened into Abraham's life. And he came to Abraham in in Genesis 22 and he says, Abraham, Abraham, give me your son, your only son, whom you love. Right? He doesn't just say, give me your son. He says, give me your only son. By the way, the one that you love more than anything else. And the author of Genesis tells us that this is a test. Who's being tested here? Is God testing Abraham to see if Abraham loves God most? Does that mean then that God doesn't know something about Abraham? Does that mean that God then doesn't know everything? Does that really mean he's God? No. God knows exactly. God knows exactly. God is not testing Abraham so that he will know if Abraham will be faithful, but he's testing Abraham so that in the end, the results will show whether or not Abraham knows that God is all he needs. That he's going to continue to walk by faith and not by sight. Now that I have Isaac, you know, I can just, you know, I can just raise him up, give him the best education, send him to an Ivy League school, private schools, tutors, everything. You know, he'll, I'm going to work my butt off so that he can have a great future. Many of our parents live the same way. And he will be the dream. But God intervened into his life to test Abraham's heart. And it was only when Abraham was willing to lay down his most prized possession, his son, on the altar, that God came in and said, Stop! In that moment, God gave him a substitute sacrifice. There was a ram caught in the thicket. He says, take that ram and sacrifice that in place of your son. Now I know you love me. But even that ram was just a glimpse of hope. Because for us, for you and me, and for Abraham as well, the same God who asked Abraham to give uh, him his only son Isaac was the same God who gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You see, God came into our lives and he has offered us the greatest joy, the greatest gift, the greatest treasure, the greatest jewel, the greatest reason to live this life. It's not to fatten my pocket, to leave a legacy, but it's to follow Jesus. And because God did not withhold his only son, that those who with faith would trust in him, God would open the door to eternal life. To living and worshiping and existing in heaven for all of eternity, completely fulfilled, completely content, doing exactly what we were always created to do, and that is to give glory and honor and worship to God forever and ever and ever. You see, one commentator says, God doesn't give us the key to the mysteries of life. He keeps it to himself. Therefore, we must trust God to open the doors in front of us. See, we like to bring life under our control. We like to earn it 
And we like to, to believe that we were able to do and take credit for that which we have. But Solomon is saying, the Bible is saying, only through faith in God, through his son Jesus, will we really be able to enter into the most important door, which is the gateway to salvation, but also be able to live a life of purpose and meaning that gives glory and honor to God forever. You see, I'm kind of summing up the story here, but we have two more weeks to go. We're going to talk about Ecclesiastes a couple more weeks. And again, this is pessimism with a twist. But let me invite you today to remember what God has given you. Maybe God has given you a great job, or maybe you're in a wonderful relationship, or you have a closet full of clothes, or you have an incredible apartment decked out with the best TV and sound system available. But let me remind you today that God has given you something even more valuable than that. He's given you his son. And today we're going to come up to the table and we're going to take this juice and we're going to take this bread and we're going to use this opportunity of worship to remember that God has given us his son. He's given us the cup of salvation and the bread of life. And that is all we need. And when that is the ultimate thing in our lives, everything else, as they say, is icing on the cake. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us a gift, a treasure, a joy that never fades, that can never be taken away from us, that never loses its value, its shine, its luster, its glory. We thank you that you have given us your son, Jesus. And Father, we come before you and we admit that oftentimes we put so many other things up to compete with his glory. Ourselves, our comfort, our own conveniences. But Lord, today we're reminded that that is a chasing after the wind. And so, Lord, help us to, in faith, trust that what you have given us and what you have in store for us is really all that we need. And that you are a God who is sovereign. You are a God who opens the doors to opportunities and seasons in our life. And that we simply need to trust you. So, Father, would you fill us now with your spirit as we continue in our worship Uh, as we uh, reflect on this word from Ecclesiastes, but Lord, also as we consider how this might change the way we think and the way that we live and the way that we pursue the things which you have set in front of us. Lord, we give you all the glory, honor, and fame, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.